there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and in today's episode, John sits down with the creator behind the YouTube sensations, Relax My Dog and Relax My Cat, Ahmad Ahmed. And yes, as you may have guessed, those channels are built not for humans, but for their pets. Ahmad was able to scale this unconventional business to seven figures in profit and eventually Inc. an eight-figure deal selling his company to the renowned California hip-hop label, Create Music Group. So how did Amon make all this happen? Before we dive deep, a brief word from today's sponsor of the show, Dynabook. If you're in the business of solving problems, you're going to need the right tools to help you get there. Dynabook's lineup of professional-grade laptops are expertly built for successful business everywhere. Need a budget-friendly option for everyday computing? The ValuePack Satellite Pro C50 comes fully loaded with everything you need to breeze through your daily tasks. The ultra-portable Tecra A40 and A50 are the perfect choice for today's hybrid professional, delivering industry-leading security and reliability so you can work comfortably from anywhere. And if you're looking for a top-tier device that keeps up with business, the Portage X40L offers an exceptional computing experience and military-grade durability in one of the world's lightest laptops. But workplace technology needs to do more than check off a list of features. You need a device that's ready to work every day of the week, which is why Dynabook offers the best coverage in the industry. Rest assured, they have you covered for the long haul with a three-year warranty and 24-7 anytime support. Get exactly what you need in a laptop and more at dynabook.computer. Now, what's funny and something I discovered while gearing up for this conversation is that my own dog is an avid viewer of Amon's channel especially during the noisy holiday fireworks sessions. If you have a pet that battles with some anxiety, I've shared the specific channel that my dog loves in the show notes page over at builttosell.com. Trust me, that's definitely a show note I never expected to share. Okay, so let me tell you more about today's guest, Amon, who amassed over 2 million subscribers, generated seven figures in profit with his YouTube channel and sold for eight figures. Now, as you're listening, here's some insights you can watch out for. The first being how to harness the power of SEO to skyrocket your business, how to fortify your YouTube channel's presence with Amon's innovative technique, how to elevate your brand stature using a personal approach of Amon's, how to empower your team with unparalleled trust and autonomy, how to determine your non-negotiable exit number, how to engage a seasoned advisor to help you sidestep an earnout, and how to be due diligence ready even if selling isn't on your radar, plus so much more. All right, time to hear the full story from Aman Ahmed. Enjoy. Aman Ahmed, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about Relax My Dog. This was music for anxious pets. Am I getting it right? Correct. Yeah, it literally is. So we... Um were kind of experimenting with like sound therapy and all this stuff for dogs. And it was just, you know, we originally were doing it for humans. And then I think a few people were joking around saying they're trying a dog and it actually works. And then we just elaborated on that and went further and further. And then over the years, it just started kind of molding into this, I guess, music therapy for pets. So when they left home alone to help with anxiety, stress, loneliness, boredom, and uh, yeah, it seems to have a massive positive impact on the mental health of pets. 
So you've got a bailout for an afternoon at the grocery store or whatever, and your pet gets anxious. You can put on this YouTube channel and have it play in the background and, and the, the dog or the cat will be less anxious. Is that the idea? Correct. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I'm lucky. Our dog is pretty chill, so we can leave for half a day and he doesn't really move. But I have heard of dogs, especially as they age, they can get more anxious. Um, do you know what? It's, it's different, to be honest. I think even if they're puppies, they're like generally like super, super anxious. Uh, I think if they age, they, you know, as they go on, they become more trained anyway. So it's probably God. the other way around is what we've noticed. But every younger, dog is so individual, so individual, so unique. There's sometimes and, hard to, yeah. And how did you, how did you make money doing this? Like, what's the business model here? So for us, it was through YouTube and then Spotify and all the music streaming services. And then, uh, then we created our own subscription service. So that's pretty, pretty much it. And then licensing deals and, um, brand partnership deals. So yeah, quite a few revenue streams, but yeah, big ones. Okay. So YouTube. As I understand it, once you reach a certain threshold of viewership, you get a revenue share of the advertising they insert in your content, correct? Correct. Yeah. YouTube obviously moves the goalpost every so often, but we were a partner for, God, like seven, eight years or something. Okay. So that lucky to get in early. Okay. Um, Subscription services. So if you didn't want to sign up for Relax My Dog through or get it through YouTube and consume the advertisements, you could go direct and buy a subscription. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And what did that subscription cost? It's only $5 a month. Okay. And, and of your overall revenue pie when you sold, what proportion would have been from that subscription service like ballpark it would it have been like a big chunk or like quite a small chunk to be honest like 10 percent, i think it was uh but that was because we were just at the stage of just growing the subscription side of the business but okay. we, you know the, the youtube side and the spotify and all that stuff was just constantly growing so at the same time we were just doubling down on that and how does it work with spotify like i i know youtube I know Joe Rogan signed some major deal with Spotify. I didn't really understand the economics of that. So what, what, are, like, what specific are the economics of Spotify? And how are so they different Joe, to YouTube? Yeah, Joe Rogan is obviously a special case. That's kind of more like a, a record label type of deal. Um, yeah. Whereas with Spotify, if you're just distributing on... So you, you use a, a distribution service like TuneCore or any of those, and then they will just put it onto every music streaming store from Spotify to Apple Music to Tidal to some of them that are only music streaming services in England or even Japan or wherever. So you get distributed to maybe 120 different music streaming services and then you just get paid per stream. So Spotify, I think, pays like 0.003 or something like that per stream. As Maybe it's changed. And then every streaming service has its own rate. And then you just get paid a royalty per stream. Oh, cool. Okay. So you don't have to worry about where it's being distributed, whether it's Spotify or Tumblr or whatever. Tumblr, Spotify. It doesn't matter. You, you get paid based on the syndication company that, that basically syndicates it for you. Correct. Yeah. 
Isn't that interesting? And then what about partnerships? So I'm assuming like dog retailers and dog food, like who are the partners that you guys have? So we've done brand deals with like dog CBD com- uh, companies and then like dog food and organic dog food and uh, dog cameras and yeah, just lo- loads of like random brands that have approached us for brand deals. So, um, and it's one of those things we, we wish we did more of those. It's just, we were such a lean operation and the team was maxed out. And it was one of those things that I was in the process of hiring more people to expand that business because all these brand deals were inbound. Those interest us. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the, the team because I'm fascinated by oh, so much about this business. But one question that comes to mind is like, once you build the content, is is it necessary to continue to create? Like, do dogs really care if the if the music changes? So the funny thing is, yeah, we do. We constantly create new content every week. There's new music coming out. So our music producer Ricardo is in uh, El Salvador. He's constantly in the studio, just producing content, and we're experimenting. So literally. We, you know, before this, we were just uh, looking at a new concept of doing bossa nova, but for dogs. So experimenting with bossa nova. So that's the new type of content that's going to come out soon. And we were just literally chatting to Ricardo now, like, okay, you know, embed the frequencies here and here for for dog hearing to make it easier. And uh, so we, it's just constantly experimenting, and that's just the music side. But we also create visuals as well. So we make TV for dogs, TV for cats. So I'll be chatting to my film producer in Indonesia about, okay, you know, let's experiment with these type of visuals and this type of scenery. And actually, and one how producer- you, How do you measure the efficacy of this? Like, how do you actually, like, is there any science behind it? Or are you just watching dogs and see how they, they react to it? So I'd say like, you know, science is basically the core, the core of science is data, isn't it really? So all we're doing is just collecting data and then thinking, like, what's working, what's not working, and then iterating from there. And but how are you collecting the data? Like, just through all um, the endpoints. So watch time and quantitative and qualitative. We'll do research with our fan base and everything. So we take all these data points, like, okay, what's going on here? What's not going on here? Et cetera, et cetera. My whole team is kind of based on interacting with our fan base. Okay, got it. And how did you convince him? Because I mean, the skeptic in me is saying, okay, like I yeah. could just put on a Coldplay album and the dog would probably just chill out to Coldplay. So how, like, I'm sure you had to sell against that attitude, right? Of like, yeah, you could just put on some music in the background or just flip CNN on and the, and the dog will be fine. They'll be distracted or whatever. So like, yeah. how did you sell against that skepticism like what was the how did you, i mean i'm assuming you over you had a way to overcome that skepticism mm, the funny thing is not really because as a pet owner if you if there's something specialized for your dog they're just going to try it and you just have to go on youtube and try it you know it's not costing you anything or go on spotify it's not costing you anything so so luckily we, yeah we didn't have to overcome any of that stuff and uh, and we were very lucky. That's incredible. It was grew through word of mouth as well. And as you grew, like, at what point did competitors start to kind of get wind of what you were doing and start to try to rip off the idea? The good thing is, right, and obviously we do have competitors here and there, but we competed against ourselves. 
So I learned from my first channel on YouTube, which was Relaxation Music for Humans, when all my videos were number one, I was like, I'm the king now. No one can stop me, except which is the dumbest thing ever. Because one thing I realized is that you have to work super hard to get to number one, and you have to work twice as hard to stay number one. And what I did this time around, I thought, okay, before anyone else starts creeping up the, the search engine optimization, the rankings, all that stuff, I replicate my brand. So if you go on YouTube, you might search for dog music, and you'll see like maybe a few YouTube channels that are doing it, but all of them are mostly owned by me. Um, because I thought, let me interconnect and create a wall around my niche as much as possible to be like, I own this space. And yeah, we've had people compete against us. Like I think Spotify released in 2020, a pet playlist. Uh, and that luckily, you know, for us that flopped, even the, the articles, like I think Mashable wrote an article saying that, you know, forget about Spotify, try and relax my dog. It's a lot better. So, um, as I, wow, that's amazing. And, that, and the other thing is actually people started searching in pet playlists because I was like, where's all this traffic coming from? But because we were ranking everywhere on all the keywords, uh, we started getting the traffic that Spotify probably paid like multiple millions of pounds or dollars for the press. So yeah, I should have diverted the traffic to us. So very lucky in that way. Uh, but yeah, you know, that doesn't mean be complacent. I'm sure we'll have competitors and we have, you know, competitors creeping up all the time. We just need to figure out how to be one step ahead. So when was the last time you had an employee make a mistake that ended up impacting a customer? Stop mistakes before they happen. With VidGuide, your video-based instructions pop up directly into the software your employees use. From Salesforce to QuickBooks and from Bamboo HR to HubSpot, if you use it to run your business, VidGuide integrates with it. As a Built to Sell listener, you can grab a free 14-day trial at vidguide.com slash free. So who's the we? So you mentioned Ricardo uh, was a co-founder and producer of the music. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Ricardo. And then the rest is just my team um, in England um, who are here with me right now in LA as well. So they uh, just, you know, kind of, there's a, maybe like 10 of us and we just keep an eye on everything. And it's all about, you know, the fan base, the data, the comments, all that stuff as much as possible. So I think that's something that we keep an eye on. Uh, and the co comments would be coming through YouTube and the various subscription sites like Spotify, for example. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Just all, all, all other social platforms like TikTok and all that stuff. Yeah. Interesting. And so are, and are those full-time employees or are they contractors or how have you structured your team that way? There's a few of them that are full-time and the others are like uh, contractors. Right, right. Um, and so this business, it sounds, you know, as we discuss it, you know, relatively early stage and small, but it got to be pretty big. Like walk me through, like to the extent that you were able to share, sort of how big did you get this business before you wanted to sell? Like in terms of, are you able to share revenue or uh, some proxy for size? Yeah, so we got into, I can say, seven figures in profit. So 
yeah, never mind seven figures in revenue. We hit seven figures in profit, which is the most important metric. I think I've realized people, revenue is a vanity metric. That's it. If you, so I talk in profit always, never revenue. And so yeah, to get seven figures profit is a, a really good place to be in, like good seven figures in, in that. So that was that. So that's what I can say. And then, yeah, we had like millions and millions of pets around the world, like using our content. So I think, you know, we had about, I think maybe 30, 40 million pets streaming our content, either on YouTube or Spotify or wherever. And, um, and because our content is long form, they were consuming about one, uh, 15 million hours every 28 days. So that's one five million every 28 days. And to translate that is about 1,700 years of content is consumed every 28 days on <laughs> that's our insane. channels. Yeah. It's mad. Absolutely mad. Wow. That's just amazing. And, and so really, it sounds like the secret sauce to your business was mastering the various search engines, being able to rank for things like pet music or mm -hmm. calm down my dog or anxious dog music or something like that. Those search terms. That's, it sounds like that was a fairly significant part of the secret sauce of this business. I say that, but the real secret sauce is the brand. I think the brand and the interaction with owners, like, you know, even though it wasn't a scalable approach and we still do this is we interact with all our users as much as possible, like replying to comments and asking open questions, not just being like, oh, thanks, but like, oh, you know, thanks. You know, how did it work? Or what's your dog's name? Or how old is your dog? Or, you know, how did you find us? Et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's actually not scalable, but I think, uh, it's this now with AI and all this stuff as well, it's actually easier to have a lot of preempted conversations and stuff anyway. So it makes life easier, but a hundred percent, I think the secret sauce is actually giving a shit about your users, like genuinely, genuinely caring and having conversations, which, you know, most brands don't. How many people on your staff do you have dedicated to answering comments? Uh, like seven of them, and it's 80% of their time. Wow. Yeah. Seven people doing virtually nothing but answering comments. Correct, yeah. And what sort of coaching do you give them to answer comments. Cause when you've got seven people, you can't oversee approve every comment personally. I'm assuming you've got to really empower them with a set of guidelines, presumably on here's what I want you to do. Here's how, like, how have you trained them? That's to the funny thing. Comments? The funny thing is I told them to be the complete opposite to maybe even be a bit trolly. And, um, cause that's the thing. Like the whole thing was like, I said, Sam, just be, just do, to free reign, do whatever you want to do. If you have, if you have sarcastic replies or be a bit of a troll or whatever it is, that's fine. Just do it because you want personality to the brand. Just no professionalism or whatsoever. Just be a human. That's what, and what, then what? they have free reign. 
What do you mean by trolling? Like trolling as in like, you know, maybe being a bit, um, I'd say on edge in terms of you know, creating triggering conversations that, that will then create a chain of triggering conversations. Wait, give me an example. But in a fun way, in a fun way. Ah, I literally, like, we see so many, I don't know what. Um, hmm. I actually can't think of anything right now. But my team have done a lot. But then it's just one of those things where we just start collecting what's useful data and then like, okay, this is interesting, this is interesting. And then kind of kind of okay. go, go from there. Let me push back a little bit on giving free reign because I think some people are hearing that and saying, oh my gosh, like, come on, you can't be serious. Like, if I were to give total free reign without any guidelines to my employees, there's all kinds of nonsense they would put online and that's going to reflect poorly on my brand. And, mm-hmm. and anyone who's built a brand, Nike, Peloton, Apple, are so careful about what representatives of that brand say about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you must have given them some sandbox to play in, some set of rules, guidelines, like to not step over a certain line. Was there nothing that you gave them to, to sort of I'd not say do? so the key thing was obviously collect important data, but you know, have a bit of banter, should we say, probably the best word. But um it works. Look at Ryanair, which is a, a UK our European based airline. Whenever something happens in the news, they troll so hard and everyone praises them on it's just such a huge conversation on twitter if you look at ryanair's uh, twitter account the some of the stuff they say is is so funny and so like tongue-in-cheek but they end up getting loads of like and they get they get uh, um kind of rewarded for it now a lot of people like you know that is the best marketing tactic because that's the Isn't thing. That Every brand is trying to be professional. Why don't you be the complete opposite and see what happens? Obviously, as long as you don't offend anyone, you know, be a fit, like, you know, swear at anyone or whatever. But if you have a bit of tongue in cheek humor, it can actually go a long way. Yeah, but I guess some people's humor is another person's offense, right? Like that, that's a subjective line that that can be crossed from time to time. Did you ever But that's the thing, right? So if you look at Ryanair's Twitter, they do that sometimes as well. It can be misinterpreted, yeah. but it still creates a huge conversation. So much social media engagement. And it's an, it's an airline that um it's an airline that most people hate any it's like Spirit Airlines in America. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The or, funny or thing a is, a bit like Southwest or something, but it's like a cheap Southwest, if you can imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but people already hate that airline anyway. But uh, yeah. if anything, it, it improves their brand because oh wow, well, at least they have a sense of humor. Like it, it might, I might have a delayed flight or something, but at least they have a sense of humor. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it kind of work, kind of works in their favor, but that's just like one example. But obviously, for us, um, it's kind of. You know, obviously, like my team are not going to do anything crazy. Uh, I oversee some of the things here and there, but other than that, like I see what they're doing and and it's it's working. I just, I guess, what I'm trying to say is, like being super professional and being so much in the guidelines is 
you're not being genuine to your users. Like, how can you be as genuine as possible and remove the professional barriers? Yeah, yeah, got it. And so you you empowered them to do that. You have eight people that are replying to comments. I'm assuming that also includes uh, people that are that are that are working social media. That they're you know replying to comments on TikTok and and other platforms. Is that correct or no? Correct. Yeah. So the the whole team they're doing like all the the social everything all the all the platforms they're doing all that. Um, constantly and just kind of see what's working what's not working look for trends you know memes are here and there and all that stuff so yeah um yeah we use a lot of memes i guess being being with pets as well it's kind of kind of works but that helps us and do you and do you create those memes yourself or just amplify ones you you see we create them or we amplify one or the other yeah got it got it got it Awesome. So, I mean, seven figures in profit sounds like a, an incredible cash cow. What triggered you to want to sell it? I think it was just, um, you know, it was, I was approached by a few companies and um, it was one of those things where it was, um, it was a good offer. And I think it was more also on the flip side as um, a solo entrepreneur. 100% owner, self-funded, no investors, none of that stuff. No, co- Obviously, Ricardo is a co-founder, but he's more like a music producer only. But it was one of those things, I think, you know, as a business owner, um, when you don't have co-founders or investors or any of that stuff, it's good because you have more freedom and you can do what you want to do and grow as quickly as possible. But then eventually it gets lonely. And I think that was kind of one of the reasons I thought, Okay, because you, know, you have so much responsibility on yourself. And I thought, okay, I can continue growing this as a cash cow. Uh, but I also, I guess, had a figure in my head that if I was approached to sell the business, then it'd kind of be stupid to say no. So it was just one of those things I thought, okay, this is good. But more importantly, the company that approached me was, um, I just felt like it would open up more doors as well because think about it is is music and tv for dogs and cats i could have been bought by i don't know what do you have here the equivalent like pet smart or you know what mm-hmm. some of those like pet retailers or pet food companies or pet insurance or whatever and uh i ended up getting bought by a major rap hip-hop label in hollywood <laughs> which is the complete opposite end of what we do and um and i thought wow this is insane but also, it just it felt right. It felt right. It felt like you know this, this they could elevate the brand. Um, so it's and you know it's a, it's a process you go over for like God, ten months, I think it is. So you kind of get to know if it's the right decision. So you mentioned you were approached approached by multiple companies or just Create Music Group. Create Music Group was the successful acquirer of this hip hop hip hop brand. But were, were there other companies that approached you as well? Yeah, there was a few other companies in England and uh, I think uh, uh, Asia. And, and what, what kind of companies were they? In this, uh, I'd say it's like some of them were major, major record labels. Some of them were uh, media companies and uh, some of them were like pet related companies, like, you know, huge, like vet chains and, and all that stuff. So, 
And and did you um, did you approach them? Did you kind of put their business up for sale, or was it all kind of spontaneous, inbound, unsolicited, inbound? It was all unsolicited, like inbound type of stuff. So, got it. And you mentioned you had a number in your head that if you were able to get it, it would be stupid not to sell. Um, can you walk me through how? you thought about that number. If you're willing to share the number, great. If yeah. you're not, that's totally cool. It would just be, I'd be curious though, your, the way you arrived at your number. Cause it's, you're, you know, everybody's got a number. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a kind of a euphemism, something we talk a lot about, but when I push people about how they calculated their number, inevitably people have sort of a different way to think about their number. Some people have a, something they want to go buy or something that would for them be a recognizable achievement in their minds. Like, how did you come up with your number? I think everything comes down to like your lifestyle first. Like what lifestyle do you want? And um, like I said, I was lucky my business was already making seven figures profit. So anything that I need to buy, I already bought anyway. So there wasn't like I needed to go buy anything and I wasn't really into any crazy stuff on all about experiences and stuff. So I think it's just, um, I think the number was more like, yeah, more like when I work, I work for fun because I want to, not because I have to. And then the number for me was like, is it going to compound? Even if it's sat in the bank and making, luckily interest rates are quite high now, but, even if it's sat in the bank and it's making interest and that interest is compounding your wealth, then you're kind of on the track to build generational wealth, right? In a very, very lazy way because it's just in the bank. Uh, now, if you do something with that, then you can like compound like crazy. But that was my baseline, I thought. And that's how I worked on my number. I thought, okay, then even if I'm, my wealth is compounding and probably the shittest possible way you can with money than when it's sat in the bank, then you know that, yeah, you're pretty much chilling, even if you do that. So that's how I came. I thought, okay, there's a number for that. And then just worked on it from there. But why not? And again, I'm asking this uh, question because I'd imagine some people would be thinking about it in their own minds is, is, is why not just, bank the profit it sounds like a relatively inexpensive business to run mm. but you're clearing seven figures of profit some might say well why not just take that money put it in uh you know the stock market or commercial real estate or whatever and continue to sort of own the business and scrape off that profit why not why not do that as opposed to uh, as opposed to sell, maybe take me through your thought process there. So that's what I was doing already anyway. So I had already banked enough out of all the profits I was taking out anyway. So it just got to a point where I thought if I continued doing that, it would take me a few years, maybe five, six years to get to the number that I can get in the next 10 months. Uh, mm. in cash so it was just like and it was just it was one of those things where I thought um, it was it was more the key decision was two things was and I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably have co-founders investors and all that stuff so probably less of a lon lonely ride but 
I think, you know, the, like I said, there's, there's benefits of being a solo co-founder, a solo founder, having profits. You can move quick. You can do whatever you want with that money, et cetera, et cetera. But the negative is it can become lonely. And, um, and also it can become like there's all the responsibility lies on you. So for me, it was more like, okay, I've got to where I need to get to. And I think as a solo founder as well, you can only kind of get to a certain point after that. Then it was one of those things where I got to a point where I needed to hire an executive team, a CEO, CEO, blah, 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 blah. But I thought, do I want to be okay? I can have the finances to build a 50 person company if I wanted to, but do I want to be managing 50 people? Like, hell no. Um, that's not me. And, um, so for me, it was just like, just the money on the table is more than enough. Just, just sit back. But it was all, every decision was based around my lifestyle, my mental health, my, my physical health. That's it. But I can continue growing because I had private equity approach me and said, you know, we can buy a certain percentage of business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know how private equity works. Like it's kind of like running on a treadmill. All they're going to do is just turn the speed up until you fall off. So it's, or, or maybe you survive and build a billion dollar company and exit. But you've sacrificed so much of your physical and mental health by that time. So what's the point of even having that money? Um, so that was kind of my whole process. It sounds like there was also a calculus around the time value of money, like five or six times your profit all at once had utility, right? It'll you'd allowed to de-risk, put it into uh, an account that would generate an additional wealth over time. When you say generational wealth, I've heard this term before. I, I think it's become quite popular, but I'm curious to know for you, what does it mean, generational wealth? Like, what does that mean exactly? So I think generational wealth is like, you know, obviously um, the, the future, like when I have kids or whatever it is, then yeah, that's pretty much enough for them you know, when, when, obviously right now I'm single, I need to meet someone first, then have kids. But yeah, there's just kind of one of those things where that's kind of where I, I want to be in, in that position that is compounding for my future children when that happens. Got it. And so was there another business that you were, you know, like what I'm hearing you say is a little like the Peter Thiel uh, description of, you know, either you're a zero to one person or you're a one to 10 person, meaning, um, and, and I haven't, you know, I hope I'm, I'm paraphrasing Teal's book correctly, but, uh, you know, you either like starting things or you like kind of growing them exp exponentially. Those two things are rarely in the same person. It sounds like you enjoy the startup, the, the process of getting a business to be successful, but once it's reached a dozen employees, you don't have any desire to have a kingdom of people that you're managing. Am I characterizing that correctly? Like, did you have another business that you wanted to go start? No, not really. I don't need to start another business. Like, I can retire now if I wanted to. Um, but I'm just, like I said, I'm working for fun. But, and, and I think it's interesting you reference these books like uh, Peter Thiel, and, and it's just, it kind of brings you into like a wider 
thing that you see in the books and social media and all this stuff is everyone is chasing to build a unicorn. Mm. But why? Like, even if you exit for, say, like, even $5 million or whatever it is, you know, you can have a good life with that. Even if it was, like, something like five, but why is no why why is no one glorifying that? And that's obviously a lot more achievable. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, whatever it is. But everyone's just chasing this billion dollar dream. And I think it's who is it? Um I think Gary V used to push it quite a lot, didn't he? Uh on like you know, he all like all these people just interview like billionaires because he said the only definition of success is one shot unicorn. Which is insane. Or the only definition of success is if you've raised $20 million, $50 million, or you're on your serious Z raising like $250 million in a down round or something, you still get praised for that. So it's like, but no one glorifies that. Oh, I make a million dollars a year, two million, whatever. That's true success, in my opinion. Well said, and you won't get an argument <laughs> from me on that at all. I think that's a brilliant. And, and of course, uh, a lot of what we talk about on this show is that, you know, once you take outside money, uh, you know, the clock is ticking. You've got pressures that are, are very intense at times to sell or to maximize value. And if you, if you build a, if you own a hundred percent of a smaller pie, it gives you total control, total decision-making. And of course, all the wealth that gets accumulated when the business eventually does sell. So I, you won't get an argument from me on that at all. Let's talk a little bit about the actual sale itself. So you, you had multiple inbounds, some private equity saying, we'll buy 60% and roll some. Uh, you had brands. Uh, maybe walk me through how Create Music Group, do they use the CMG acronym? Correct. Yeah. CMG. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about how they, they approached. Like, uh, it was a company that they acquired, I think trap nation. And it was, it was like a, a random email in my inbox. I was so close to deleting it as well. Cause it went to my junk. And then luckily I just scanned to the, the footer and I was like, Oh, trap nation. That looks familiar. I was so close to pressing delete. And then, um, then it kind of, you know, a conversation kind of escalated, but also it was like a random LinkedIn connection from another company that Create Music Group owns called Flight House. And um, it was, just, yeah, someone had already heard of my YouTube channel there. And there were, you know, it was just a conversation about a partnership. They kind of, I didn't realize both random connections were owned by the same entity. So then it just went, it's the conversations went straight to the top very quickly. And where does it go from there? So the conversations, when you say went straight to the top, they went straight to the top of Create Music Group? Correct. Yeah. The CEO and CEO. Yeah. Okay. And how did they, sometimes these conversations are shrouded in sort of uh, kind of obtuse language or oblique language, like, you know, let's have a partnership, but did they cut right to the chase and say, we'd like to buy you? Or was it more this kind of partnership? Let's learn what each other are doing, how we can help each other. I think it was just a straight up, like, do you want to sell? <laughs> that was it. So and that, how did you react? Well, it was cut. I thought, yeah, let me entertain the idea. Um, 
because I kind of was open to it anyway. But um, I thought, yeah, let me entertain the idea and see where this conversation leads. Where does it go from there? From there, it kind of, yeah, start getting serious. There's more meetings, all that stuff. And then, yeah, a bit of back and forth. And then you get a LOI letter of intent. And then... Had you shared before the LOI? Well, first of all, what was your reaction to the LOI? Um, the LOI is just kind of like a formal letter, really. So it's just, okay, this is formal. Yeah. Had they shared with you their thoughts on valuation before preparing the LOI? Like, had you guys agreed uh, verbally on what the numbers would be? We we kind of, yeah, had agreed. But then, you know, after that, I got uh, an M&A guy involved and then he just managed the process. And there's a, it, was, it was a bit of a range, should we say, just to get to like the LOI stage and then kind of just went from there. When you say there was a bit of a range, what, what do you mean? The, the valuation? The Correct, yeah, value, valuation range, yeah. So it wasn't one of and those then when the- agree on a number. First you like then you get an investment banker involved or uh and then they obviously go into the details from there. Got it. So they and how did they think about valuation? Was this a multiple of your profit they were offering to pay or multiple of your revenue? Or how did how do they think about it? Yeah, yeah. So it's generally done on like EBITDA uh, mm-hmm. multiples. So yeah, it was a EBITDA. Generally, yeah, it can be done on EBITDA multiples, branding, users, all that stuff, et cetera. So the, those are generally the, the main multiples. Got it. So it sounds like they came to you and said, you know, we'd be willing to pay between X and Y or kind of a range of multiples. Then the LOI, I'm assuming, hardened that up. So it went from not having a range to actually having a definitive number? Am I no, no, sorry. The LOI still had the range. The LOI is just... Oh, it did? Form. Okay. It's a, yeah, because it's a formal letter. And then from yep. there, you just, you know, you can't agree on anything until the accounts, the numbers, all that stuff are officially cleaned up and then you have a clear picture and then you have all the data. But this is not something that you do. This is what your investment banker does. So they clean everything up. I'm like, okay, this, 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 because, you know, it's called adjusted. It's one of the things to call adjusted EBITDA. Then, you know, the real EBITDA. So, um, you know, people that own businesses might put unnecessary expenses into their business that are not business critical. So you need to take all those out because they're not like, actually, you have to put in business critical only expenses. And then as a result, generally, that makes your profits even bigger. Yeah. Because that trip to Bali wasn't a, a a business trip, was it? But you said it was a business Don't trip. Tell the IRS. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh so that's 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 one example. But yeah, so things like that. Um yeah, are quite interesting. But this is what like investment bankers generally get involved yeah. in. Yeah. 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 So that's referred to as the adjustments process or coming up with an adjust adjusted EBITDA number. So you did that. And is all this, you know, usually in an LOI, at least the letters of intent I've seen, there there is a, a no shop clause, which means you effectively sign an agreement not to negotiate with anybody else until you constantly a deal. Did your does your LOI have a no shop clause associated with Correct. it? Correct. Yeah, it's called an ex- exclusive exclusivity period. Got That's it. Correct. Got it. Yeah. So you had that. And it, it so you signed an LOI that had a range. 
you gave up you know, negotiating leverage and you went through the diligence process, adjusted EBITDA and so forth and came to a final share purchase yeah. agreement. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say like it, it was it was negotiation and diligence at the same time. Um, so that's pretty much because you have to do the diligence to clean up the data to then negotiate the correct number. Um, so that's pretty much what the investment banker did. But it was one of those things. I think anyone sending their business always, always get an investment banker or M and A or whatever it is because you cannot do this. So I was at one point thinking I can do this myself. I just need a lawyer. But then my lawyer was like, "Trust me, just get an investment banker. It's gonna, it's gonna get real complicated." And I was like, "No, it's fine. It's just, maybe, yeah." Because I was like, "No, for it's folks fine. Maybe it's myself." So yeah, yeah. And if if folks are a bit skeptical of that, saying, "Oh, it's a lot of money for an M and A professional," like, what specifically could you point to that would would illustrate? how beneficial it is to have an M&A professional at your side. Could you like share a story or an example? I can share feelings, shall I say, in the sense that I remember being in calls and be like, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. So, because this is way above my knowledge and way above my capacity. And, and it was just kind of like, it hit me as like, there is no way I could have done this myself. This has gone way beyond my knowledge. I don't know what it means. So it was weird. I was like, is it? I didn't even talk about my own business. I don't know if they're even talking about my business <laughs> because it was just so like to another level. So you need an investment banker because they're so detailed on numbers and accountings and all. And they, they actually cleaned up some of the mistakes my accountant made, which I wasn't aware of. So. Yeah, you you need one, but I think obviously there's a lot of sharks out there. I got very lucky with mine, but I interviewed a lot of sharks, and I think mine specifically did M and A in the music industry, and he was a like a one man band, so he was like so all in. There was no office hours. I could call him at midnight, but look what's going on, this this this, etc. So I think. um Finding a good M and A person is hard, but you need one. Hundred percent. Yeah, well said for sure. It's something. It's a message we've had on this show time and time again that that they pay for themselves many times over in terms of uh, you know the money that that you end up taking away from a deal generally is uh, is greater with than without. So walk me through the most difficult part of the negotiation. Like what was what parts did, did you personally find most challenging about the, the final negotiation? Um, I said there was a few obstacles where my accountant made some mistakes with taxes and all this stuff that needs to be corrected. And the UK government was operating quite slow and that like messed up the timeline a little bit, but then they had some, uh, you know, some things on their side, which I can't obviously discuss in detail, but they slowed them down a little bit as well. So, um, there was a lot of things. Um, it was a bit of a roller coaster, should we say? I think with anything and, uh, deadlines get extended and this gets missed and this gets missed or there's certain things that are missing here and there. Or sometimes even their lawyers or my lawyers will like fuck up or mix, miss something or so they're just like, yeah, 
it was definitely those 10 months are probably the hardest ever ever worked in my business and i had my business mm. for seven years that was the hardest ever works <laughs> I, I want to push there be, and, and again the reason i want to push there is is because i want our listeners to understand what they're about to go through many of them are about to go through this process of selling their company in the next few years yeah you know, part, part of me is hearing you say you know like i'm so glad i hired an m&a professional i was way you know way out of my league they were talking about stuff i didn't realize so part of people are saying well it doesn't doesn't sound like Amon was doing anything. Like it was up to the, he totally delegated it to the M and A guy. So why was it so hard during that ten month period? If if he'd hired an M and A person, like isn't the M and A guy supposed to do all the work at that point? Like why was it still? Why were those ten months still so hard for you personally? Because I was leading it from a business perspective, so I was on top of everyone. Like this, this, this. Just double checking everything as much as possible. I'm just speeding that process up as much as I can. But at the same time, you're running a business. Everyone says this when you, when you're in the process of selling your business, you have your day job and then you have your, you're working twice. You're basically working twice. And then also on top of that, you have to put your own tax structures in place, personal tax, um, you know, all your wealth, all that stuff, trust, et cetera, et cetera. You need to start putting all that in place way beforehand as well how do they structure how do they structure the your sort of uh after the sale contract did, did you have an earn out or an employment agreement maybe talk a little bit about yeah how so that obviously uh, i'm employed uh I, can't, I don't know if i can go into actual structure but all i can say is that i got the deal that i wanted for sure um and it gave the deal that I wanted. Uh, I'm, I'd say it was, yeah, of all, it was definitely the deal that I wanted. That's, that's, that's all I can say. But, um, yeah, now I have an employment contract and there's left a bit of earn out and all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, um, the way it was structured was exactly how I wanted it. And I think I walked away with that. Like very happy, for sure. I understand and appreciate you can't get into too much detail about the actual structure. So maybe I'll ask it a different way. What advice would you give an entrepreneur uh, who is about to go through this negotiation? Maybe they've got an LOI or they've got a couple Mm -hmm. of interested people having inbound conversations you know, I'd be curious. So assuming they've got their, you know, their dream number in their head as to like you did what you, you kind of wanted or or felt that would be generational. Where where does it like, what, what advice would you give someone in that situation? I would say firstly, um, if you do have earnouts and all that stuff, um, it's it's a difficult one because then if you have an earnout, you could, Let's say for a simple example, it was a $20 million exit and you were $10 million on day one and then all this like potentially other 10 million, maybe it'll go higher if you hear a target, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you might have that other second 10 million might actually be impossible to achieve. So you really didn't have that $20 million exit. You walked away with 10 because there'll be, you know, 
the company that buys you might be a large corporate, might be a change management, they move the goalposts, they do all this stuff, etc. And or you might have shares in a company that goes up and then down. And so it was more like it depends on people's preferences. Uh, but I personally would say it would be easier just to do a 100% cash exit if you can because, you know, then you're not golden handcuffs, you would say, you're not tied down to anything. Um, so I'd say that is probably an easier option, but it depends. Some people want to earn out. Some people only want to sell 40, 50% of their company and just, just scale to, to the moon and just have. So I think it's down to your personal preference and the lifestyle that you want post close. But sounds like given the independent streak you have, you wanted as much cash up front as you could get and, and as little kind of tied to an earn out. Yeah. Makes, makes sense. And I think in keeping with a lot of our, our guests, Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go for it. Okay, cool. What was the slimiest trick? One of those inbound inquiries tried to play on you. So you mentioned it before you met with, uh, Create Music Group, there were a number of companies that sort of approached you spontaneously or out of the blue. What do they try to play on you? What tricks? How do they try to pull the wool over your eyes? Hmm. I don't think. I say probably, I wouldn't say a slimy trick, but just some of them were just stupid. And in terms of that, they had just no experience in the media space. They were just rich, bunch of rich guys, you know, hedge funds or whatever they were. And it was just like, it was just one of those things where they, uh, I felt like the smartest person in the room. And the whole reason I wanted to do an acquisition is because I want to be the dumbest person in the room. I want to open up to a whole new network, a whole new education, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, and I think, I think, I won't say it was a slimy trick, but I think one of them probably didn't understand multiples properly in this space and then miscalculated and it was just a bit embarrassing for them. Why? Uh, what was the multiple? When you say multiples in this space, what, what, what are the multiples in this space? So like a multiple in this space can be anywhere between like eight to 12 to maybe 15 or whatever it is. It depends. But, um, Times EBITDA. Yeah, EBITDA. So, but they obviously didn't really understand us properly. So they made an offer and then that offer was like maybe kind of, they're like, oh, sorry, we overcalculated. And I was like, well, I'm not going to jump up and down about it, am I? So, and it also makes you guys look stupid. So that's your problem, not mine. Peace out. <laughs> that's it. Got it. What was the, sounds like your choirs made some mistakes. What, what was the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? Like, what's the biggest do over you'd love to? To be able to change the biggest do of I'd love to change is have my tax structure in place a lot sooner. So I think I'd say anyone just yes, like just sort all that out. Even if you know there was like certain things where um 
for example, like I gifted my dad some shares and, you know, he's at an age where really those should have been put into a trust a long time ago. So you could have helped with inheritance and all that stuff. So there's a, a few things that then you have to take insurance out on that. And as a result, it's quite a lot of money when you're taking insurance out on your parents at a certain age. So there's certain things that I wish I kind of did, did a lot sooner. Um, and I'd say, I'd say to everyone, just prepare to sell, even if you're not in the process of selling. I, look at your accounts, your numbers, everything, as if someone from the outside is doing due diligence on you every single day. And I think if I took that approach, then I would have been in a, a cleaner place. And maybe this process would have been done a lot quicker. Can you describe the lowest emotional point you reached during the process of selling? The lowest emotional point? I'd say more like frustration. Because um, like certain things were, you know, like, you know, lawyers would ask like questions that they already have answers to and and uh things that they should have asked a lot sooner and now it's slowing things down and um you know there'll be times on the call where i just like lose my shit like i'm like i don't give a fuck this is not even worth the pain so and also i don't give a shit i'm already making money so <laughs> whatever um so it said there's a lot of like frustration i wouldn't say lowest emotional point but you know, business is, is one of those things where if you can detach from emotion, that's when you make the best decisions. So there was never, yeah, there was no like, oh, I'd go home and cry. Like if I had a, a frustrating day, I'd be like, oh, cool, clock off. I'm going to go play, you know, I play five-side football or soccer, whatever it is with my friends. But then that's my, that's my time. It doesn't affect me. Or I'll go to the gym or whatever. But whatever happens during the, the work hours is war, but then I can just switch off. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I'd say there's more frustrating points than like low emotional sleepless nights type of. What about break. highs? What about emotional highs during the process? What, can you describe what the high, high point was? I think the high point was when I came out to meet Crate Music Group because I was like, wow, these guys, are, they're all similar ages to me. They've built an incredible empire. And like some of the artists they represent, I'm fans of, and I listen to their music and just kind of like how well-connected they are in the music industry. Uh, you know, a few of the artists have like been nominated for Grammys and they're based here in Hollywood. And it was just a whole new like kind of, wow, I grew this business. God, like in Manchester and I'm from like Armley Leeds, which not many people make it out of my area. Um <laughs> yeah, like not many people make it out. And I'm like, here I'm in Hollywood about to sell my business to artists that I listen to. So I think that was kind of like a like a mad moment. Even now, now I'm back out here again with my team. And uh some of my team, they've, you know, grown up in some pretty rough areas in Manchester. They've never ever been out of the country. Maybe they've been to Spain or something. It's the first time all for in America for them. So 
I'm kind of re-experiencing that high with them because they're just like, whoa, this is crazy. Like they describe Los Angeles as like, you know, GTA because that's, that's the closest experience you can get to LA is playing that game, GTA 5 or whatever it is. So for them, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible to see the smile on their faces. GTA being Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> How did you educate yourself about the M&A process? Was, were there any books you read, courses you took, uh, mentors you, you, you met with? Point people no. to some resources if they're about to go through this process. So in terms of the M&A process, like literally, it was pretty much make it up as you go along. It was, I had to educate myself very quickly in the sense that what I did was like, you know, from a te- so there's three keys to M&A. Obviously, you're a lawyer, you're M&A guy, investment banker, and you're a tax person. And I had to educate myself on all three pillars as quickly as possible. And I was literally just asking questions, speaking to as many lawyers as possible, uh, many other M&A people, just, you know, kind of interviewing them, just asking these open questions to just collect as much data as I can. But there was no bugs, none of this stuff. That's the thing about this M&A thing, world. The actual details because of NDA and all that stuff, it's very hard to get that unless you have one-on-one conversations with people. So I thought, like, right, who sold the business? How do I seek them out? How do I meet them for a coffee? And just find out details that they can have openly in a conversation where it's not recorded. And then they'll be like, okay, do this, 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 this is what I'm saying. And then you can, you know, uh, then you can talk more confidential information. But I'd say seek out as many people as possible that have sold a business and probably meet them for a coffee. So it's not recorded in any way. <laughs> and then. Yeah. Just get as much info as you can. Yeah. So you sold Relax My Dog, Relax My Cats, uh, both of which collectively were doing more than seven figures in terms of profit. What did you buy yourself as a trophy to commemorate this incredible achievement? Tell me you you bought yourself something that uh, reminds you of the win. No, do you know what's so funny, actually? I didn't... I've never even had a holiday. And I did acquisition happen like two months ago. Um, first, it doesn't even feel real to me right now uh, that this has just happened. I'm still treating, even though I'm an employee, still kind of treating it as if like, oh, this is my own business. Um, it's so like it's so interesting. I think um, even my car, I never upgraded it. I was never into cars, and I had a, like a dent in the side of the car. And my dad was like, "This car is fucking embarrassing. You just sold your business for." life-changing amount of money why are you driving this piece of shit around and i was like i don't care it just goes from a to b so he was like okay i'll just find you a car and then i think you want me like a a slightly upgraded like tiny like hatchback peugeot i think it is a peugeot car i don't know if you have them here like in america but even that it's so funny because my, my my friend was like oh out of everyone like you become like a multi multi millionaire, and you buy yourself a Peugeot. Who does that? Like, could have bought yourself a Lamborghini, a Ferrari, or something like that, and you go and buy a Peugeot. <laughs> so, and they're just laughing at me. But um, it was just one of those things where I thought, "Wow, this is insane." So, but I'm not. I'm not into like. It's so I've not bought myself anything because I, I don't need to. Like it, for me, it's about life experiences. 
Um, you know, maybe I'll go on a few holidays and stuff, but I think I was just never into anything crazy. Like I've heard loads of people that have bought, sold businesses, have done this and done this and done that, have gone, you know, spent like 30, 40 grand in Bali or some, like something like that. But nah, but at the same time, you're happy with the Pujo. Yeah, literally, that's it. But yeah, it's, 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 it's more the fact that like, um, maybe it's still kind of new to me as well. I've not mentally processed what just happened. So, well, I, uh, I think it's very sage to sit on the cash, let it grow, and and maybe one day down the road you'll buy yourself something to commemorate the win beyond the Peugeot, which which, uh, <laughs> which is great. Um, if people want to reach out to you on social, it sounds like you're pretty active. What's the best way for folks to to find you on social? Are you a LinkedIn guy or Twitter? What's your preference? Anything, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. I think my Instagram is uh, open as well. So yeah, uh, awesome. Yeah, anyway. and we'll put all those in your show notes page at builttocell.com. Um anything else you wanted to say before we wrap? I'd say to anyone that's looking to sell your business, don't get greedy. Have your exit number and sell. Don't be like, oh, I can grow for more and sell for more in two years or whatever. I guarantee you, greed will make you poor. And crush you and you'll be selling a, a distressed asset so yeah i'd say words to live by uh <laughs> by Oman. thank you so much for sharing your story and uh we'll uh we'll look all of the details for my listeners uh at com. just look for Amon's show notes thanks Amon. thank you very much appreciate it thank you And there you have it for today's conversation between Aman and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can either head over to Apple Podcasts where there you can leave a rating and review or share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's podcast. A big shout out to Timo Armu, who recommended Amon as a guest here on Built to Sell Radio. So thank you so much, Timo. If you haven't checked out his episode, I will also add that to the show notes section over at builttosell.com. And if you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the program, you can nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the opportunity to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with some of the more technical terms and the video my dog loves, you can visit our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. See you again next week.